He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. Welcome back, everyone. It is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast with Dr. Philip Ovedia. I'm your co-host, Jack Heald. And joining us today is the very first guest on the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast, P.D. Mangan. P.D., welcome to the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. Well, thanks a lot, Jack and, and Phil, and thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's I'm, I've been looking forward to talking to you for a long time. Um, and it's, it was just really cool for Phil to say, Hey, let's do some guests. And you were literally the very first person I thought of. This would be a great guy <laughs> great. to have the two of you talk about, talk to. All right. So, um, tell us a little bit about who you are. Some, some of our audience is going to know who you are, but an awful lot is, is not going to have any idea. Give us your story. Um, and you know, there's a reason why we're talking to you on this particular podcast. So who is PD Mangan and, and Tell us the things that are uh, appropriate for this particular podcast. Uh, okay. Okay, great. So, uh, yes, I'm P.D. Mangan, uh, and um, I'm 66 years old. Um, I am currently uh, a health and fitness writer and coach. And how I got here, okay, so that's probably what uh, people would like to know. Sure. Um, is that I've I've long been interested in health and fitness, um, and I I worked in healthcare in my life as a, as a microbiologist. That's that's my uh, academic background. Studied chemistry and pharmacology as well, um, but you know most of my most of my career was working in hospital labs. Um, and and so I've long been interested in health and fitness, and for a long time I followed uh, basically um, standard uh, guidelines sent down from above um, in, in terms of diet. Uh, so you know low low fat and and uh, you know staying away from the bad stuff because it was my understanding that saturated fat would clog my arteries, and I didn't want that to happen. I also um, you know from a relatively early age, uh, you know, got into, um, you know, exercise in a pretty big way. I started running, um, when I was maybe 20 and I liked it. So I kept at it. Um, eventually running long distances. I've run a few marathons in my life. Um, so, uh, I was doing that for a long time. Everything was going well. And I, I eventually uh, on the diet side, um, from following these, uh, you know, sent from above guidelines, I eventually became a vegetarian and I was still running my long distances and everything. And like I said, everything was going along smoothly until, uh, when I was in my mid forties, I became ill and, um, there was, uh, well, I sought help from many doctors. I mean, I, I probably went to over a dozen, uh, you know, over, over the course of, several years. Um, nobody could help me. Eventually I got a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome. 
Um, and then, so, you know, th- this was going on and on and I wasn't getting any better. And at some point I decided that if I wasn't going to have this for the rest of my life, that I better figure out what's going on on my own and see if I could do something about it. So, um, I set to work trying to figure it out and, um, I guess I did. Um, I made it, made some changes, started feeling better and so on, um, got back into, uh, by this time I had long since quit running because I was no longer able to do it. Um, but when I started feeling better, um, I started lifting weights, which by that time I had determined was a better way to go. So, um, meanwhile, be, you know, before, before I got better at some point in my, in my research and in this, all this journey, I had told myself, well, you know, if I, if I ever figure this out, um, I'm going to have to write about it or I should write about it. And then afterwards, after I was a lot better, I, I remembered that I thought, oh, well, you know, I told myself I was going to write about it. So I did, I wrote a book about it. Um, and then when I was done with that book, I thought, well, what am I going to do now? Well, I guess I'll just keep at it. So I wrote more books. I've written six books. Um, and you know, and started up my website and, uh, then, you know, I'm I'm very active on Twitter now. And so that's, I guess, I guess that's how I got where I am right now. So real quick, how long were you suffering from this chronic fatigue syndrome before you actually cracked the code and started to make yourself well? I had it for 11 years. And what was your life like during that 11 years? Um, well, it was not a lot of fun. Um, at one point, I went on disability. But after a few months on disability, I determined that this was not going to work. Uh, it's not psychologically healthy, and especially when you're physically ill. So I was able to go back to work. You know, Fortunately, the kind of work I did was... Uh, you know, stressful work for sure, but not terribly physically demanding. So I was able to work. So I did that. Um, but otherwise it, uh, you know, my life consisted a lot of, uh, sitting in an easy chair and, um, and, you know, doing a lot of reading, which I had always done, but yeah, it it was, it was not pleasant. It's, it's, it's not pleasant being tired all the time. And feeling like you don't have the energy to do anything. I know, you know a lot I of first, people. Go ahead, Phil. I was just going to say, you know, I first came across uh, you on social media probably about three or four years ago. And you know, my first impression was, you know, I hope I can, you know, look and act like that when I'm in my early 60s. And as I learned more about your story and saw your background and, you know, what you're talking about with this chronic fatigue. Um, you know, it really mirrors uh, what I see a lot of the time. And people are told by their healthcare providers that they have problems that can't be fixed. And ultimately, you know, they're able to find a fix, uh, you know, by essentially ignoring their doctor's advice. Uh, and I'd really like to hear, you know, what caused you to look further? You know, what what stimulated you to say they can't be right about this. There's got to be something I can do and to keep looking. 
Yeah. So, you know, thinking back on it, I, I'm not sure really, you know, how much confidence I had that I would really be able to figure anything out. I mean, I thought, well, there's no harm in trying. And if I don't try, then it'll probably never be figured out. So, um, so I, I, you know, I, I set to work. Um, an interesting thing that happened that, that, uh, was fairly, you know, fairly key event in my diving into it was, in all in all the time that I had gone to doctors, um, they couldn't find anything that was wrong with me. In other words, you know, physical examination, lab results, all this kind of thing. There's nothing wrong with you that we can find out. Um, and so, you know, so that you know, that's pretty tough. Like, okay, even even looking at it from their point of view, well, what are they supposed to do? Um, so. But at one point, um, I did get an abnormal lab result. It w- it was a, a glutathione level, and you know this is as 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 you know, I'm sure that this is not a normal lab test. This is not routinely done. And you know, I had fortunately found a doctor who was helping me. Um, you know, ba- basically. He, he he was the kind of doctor that were you know as long as I was willing to come back and see him he was going to try and figure things out so you know I kept going back kept going back some things were helpful some not um, but anyway he he ordered this lab test uh, a glutathione level and you know the 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 blood sample had to be put on ice and then shipped off to some lab somewhere um, and it came back abnormal and. And when I saw that result, I thought, well, oh, that's interesting. What's this? I, 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 I'm pretty sure at that point I had never heard of glutathione. So I dived in looking into it and started finding out, you know, maybe one of the first things I found out was about N-acetylcysteine, the over-the-counter supplement that replenishes glutathione and that whey protein also replenishes glutathione. And that really the larger point is that protein replenishes glutathione. And there I was a vegetarian. Um, and I had this low glutathione level. So a light bulb went off. Like that was, that was really one of the first revelations I had. It's not a good thing to be a vegetarian. Um, at least not in my case, it wasn't. So that, that's how that happened. That's a great one. I love that. So, um, what, what was that all that had to happen was you had to start eating meat again, or were were there other pivotal moments, pivotal, (laughs) I talk real good for an educated guy. Uh, were there other pivotal moments in your journey? Well, sure. I, I think, you know, for example, finding out about vitamin D. Um, this was something I hadn't known about, you know, I, of course, probably like most people in, in my field, you know, they, you'd heard of vitamin D, but really didn't know much about it and started diving in. It turns out, Hey, there's all these people talking about widespread vitamin D deficiency, uh, and, and how it has, um, you know, effects on a, a broad range of health issues, um, 
And, and, you know, and, and then this is another thing that I can remember. I thought to myself, how long has it been since I sat out in the sun and soaked up the rays? And it was like years, you know, since I had deliberately done that. Um, and, and so I started doing that. I started laying out in the sun, um, and, and, and soaking up the rays. And, and so, you know, that was another thing, um, that did it. I, I discovered, uh, the paleolithic diet. Okay. So the idea that a lot of modern foods are making us sick and that we should be eating more in tune with what our ancestors ate, um, and so that was another, you know, big thing. I thought this, yeah, this is important and this is, this is, uh, probably how I should attempt to eat. And so I did, and definitely that was key to, you know, getting me back, um, you know, getting, getting me on my return to health. So how long did it take you once you found a key how long did it take you to to get back to normal? And are you basically back to where you were? Are you not as far back as where you were? Or are you better than where you were? Um, yeah, as to how long it took, um, you know, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe you know, I'm going to say six months to a year. What happened was I was working at it. I started feeling a little bit better and a little bit better. Um, and at some point I thought, you know, I, I feel, I feel kind of okay. And, you know, I, I told myself that I wanted to start lifting weights, uh, if I ever felt better because, you know, like I had said, I had long since quit running and I, I do like exercise. It, it, it's, it's just, um, there's nothing like it for making you feel good and, you know, feel, um, mentally healthy, um, for lack of a better phrase. Um, and so I was feeling better and I decided I wanted to start lifting weights. And I had an old barbell with a couple of, you know, a couple of plates on the end. And, you know, so I pulled it out and started working out with it. So I remember the first time I did it, you know, I lasted about 15 minutes, um, and, and, you know, was pretty exhausted and it took me a few days to recover from that. And then when I felt a little bit better, I did it again. Uh, and then I kept it that for about a month or something. And, and then I thought, you know, uh, I need heavier weights. So I went and joined a gym and never looked back, uh, in the first month, uh, first year rather that I joined this gym. Well, you know, you've seen the, these older photos of me, I was pretty skinny. So, you know, I, but anyway, the first year that I joined the gym and I worked out hard, I put on 25 to 30 pounds of muscle. Wow. Um, and, you know, so for a not, you know, and that, and that is possible for a novice trainee, especially one like me who's starting from a very low base. Um, and you, you just train hard and you eat right and you can, you can pack on the muscle. So that's what I did. And, and, you know, by, you know, after a short while, after I had joined the gym, I realized, you know, like I'm pretty much all better here. And so as, as far as how I am now, I mean, you know, when, when all this started, when, when my illness started way back when I was, I think 
42. Uh, and of course, I'm a lot older now. Um, so it's a little bit difficult to compare, uh, right. you know, but uh, yeah, I feel pretty good. I, I, uh, however, a 66 year old is supposed to feel soon to be 67. Um, I, I don't think I feel it. So, uh, you know, I, I train hard a couple times a week. And other, other than that, I walk every day. Um, so that, that's what I do. And, and yeah, I feel pretty good. So are you fairly convinced that it was the vegetarianism that kicked you into this state, whatever it happened to be? Was there some other um, circumstance or sequence of circumstances? Was it a combination of things? How'd you end up so sick? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, what, what got me there in the first place was probably the combination of my, um, my running, which I was doing a lot of, I mean, I, I was, I was running a lot. What, what I would say at the now is if not excessively, anyway, I was running a lot and then I wasn't refueling myself properly. I mean, I, I was, I was doing things like, uh, you know, I, I go out and run, uh, eight miles and then come back and have a bowl of oatmeal for breakfast or something like that, which is just, you know, completely inadequate in, in terms of, you know, rebuilding your body and repairing it. Um, so I, you know, I suspect it was a combination of those things. And then, um, you know, and then, and then I, I kept eating in the same way and I was so tired and, you know, and, and frankly underweight, uh, I got to that point anyway. Um, and so, you know, I, I suppose that was it, uh, figuring out the, you know, the glutathione and the protein and, and the vitamin D and, you know, I'm sure many other things, um, you know, did the job. I, I just like to point out for our audience that this particularly, particularly exceedingly unhealthy man was also working in a hospital, just like Dr. Ovedia. My Lord. Okay. Yeah. It is, uh, you know, pretty interesting to note uh, how many unhealthy people there are working in hospitals. Uh, but, you know, I, I guess, uh, you know, my next question for you, PD, would be, you know, as you look at, you know, what you did to recover from this um, and, you know, where you are today, how much do you think really came down to what you were eating versus, you know, what you were doing. And, you know, uh, there's always this sort of ongoing debate about, you know, what role exercise plays in health and what role what we eat, you know, plays in our health. And I'd certainly love to hear your perspective on, on that balance. Right. Well, I, you know, obviously exercise is important and a, a healthy thing to do. Um, but it, but it it's also interesting that um, exercise can be overdone, and a lot of people do overdo it, um, especially when you you're talking to relatively high performing people that that want to go hard at it every day. 
Um, and I was certainly one of those that really, um, you know, wanted to do that. Um, I, I mean, besides, it wasn't just a matter of like, oh, I'm a high performing guy, therefore I have to run. You know, I, I mean, I really did like it. Um, there's always this sense of, of overcoming, of doing better and, 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 you know, feeling powerful that way. So it is very good, but the, it's interesting that the amount of exercise that, um, is associated with the lowest mortality rates is surprisingly small. Um, you, you know, so, so Expand obviously maybe, that. I know Dr. Ovedi understands what you're saying, but I'm not sure I do. Um, so if you look at people who exercise and you see, um, how much exercise they do, and then you see who dies, basically, it's all an association. You can't prove cause and effect, but that's what you do in any kind of epidemiological study like that. You just look at a bunch of people, you look at their habits, like whether what they eat, how they exercise, you know, whether they smoke, anything, you know, that you're interested in. And then you follow them for a period of years and you see who, who dies, or you might be interested in who has a heart attack, um, this kind of thing. That, that, that's a very, a very basic sort of study. I mean, in human beings, so in, in animals versus human beings, it's very different because like, for example, nobody's ever done a randomized controlled study that proves that smoking cigarettes causes lung cancer. It can't be done. Um, so you have to look at these kind of studies, um, at, you know, with large groups of people. And especially when you're looking at human beings, even if randomized controlled studies can be done, in other words, randomized controlled study. This is like you're testing a drug. You take a bunch of people, give half of them the drug, give half of them a placebo. Then you look at your items of interest, um, you know. Um, so, but human beings just live so long that, you know, it's it's very difficult to do certain of these studies like you would do with animals, like, you know. Uh, calorie restriction increases lifespan in lab animals. Okay. So you can do this experiment. Rats only live about three years. So, you know, you can run this experiment. It's not uh, hugely expensive. It doesn't take forever because if they live, you know, 30% longer, then that's only four years instead of three. But with human beings, if you want to see if somebody's going to live, you know, another 50 years, well, you know, that, that really can't be done. So, you're looking at these kind of experiments. So anyway, with exercise, they look at a bunch of people who exercise, see how much exercise they're doing, how often, this kind of thing, and then follow them for a number of years and see who dies. So this is this was uh, this particular one that I'm thinking of was part of uh, something called the Copenhagen, uh, Copenhagen City Heart Study. This is uh, a something that's similar to the Framingham study in the United States, where they're just looking at a bunch of people over a long period of time and itemizing, you know, what they're doing, what they're eating, what they're smoking, you know, what they're drinking, et cetera, et cetera. Um, anyway, they found that the people with the lowest mortality rates in terms of exercise were doing something like jogging at a moderate pace a mile and a half to two miles, three days a week. 
something like that. So like with so many of these things, there's a U-shaped curve that goes with it, okay? So being sedentary is not good in terms of health. And then as a start exercising, mortality rates go down. But then once you get past that low point to greater amounts of exercise, then mortality rates start going up. Um, so that people who are doing things like, uh, um, you know, I don't have that study in front of me, but doing things like running eight to 10 miles every day at a fast pace had higher mortality rates than these rather slow joggers. So ultimately, anyway, the point being is that people think, always think that in terms of exercise, more is always better. And it isn't. Um, you, you need like with a drug, they, they often say that exercise, if exercise were a pill, that every doctor would prescribe it. So that's great. But if it were a pill, you need to find the right dose um, for this thing. So, um, so these, you know, massive amounts of exercise, um, you know, can, you know, they can be harmful. It's, I mean, it's hard to determine exactly what constitutes excessive exercise. I certainly think that marathon running is not optimal. Um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm going on a digression here. I don't know if I've answered your, your question, Phil, but, uh, that, that's something about exercise and, and frequency and how all that works. Yeah, I, you know, and uh, certainly uh, I agree with all of that. I think that uh, exercise is a tool, um, you know, that needs to be used in the proper context. And uh, I, you know, I'm sure you would agree that, you know, exercise ultimately isn't going to overcome the bad diet. And in fact, the beginning part of your story, you know, sort of demonstrates that. I mean, you were certainly exercising plenty. Uh, but eating a diet that, you know, wasn't optimal for you, at least. Uh, and, you know, the results were that you got pretty sick from that. It, ab absolutely. Um, you know, like the saying goes, you can't out train or you can't outrun a bad diet. Um, definitely. And, you know, I mean, I came from a, a sort of opposite end of the spectrum in terms of I was quite thin and so on. And most Americans are not coming from that end. They're coming from the other end of being overweight. And they, they are, well, they're not really learning this, that you can't outrun a bad diet. They, they think they understand, they think they understand how, how to, you know, to lose weight. And for many of them, it's by exercising a lot. Um, and, you know, if they don't change their diet for the vast majority of them, that's going to be a completely ineffective way to lose weight. Yeah. And I think that brings up another, you know, interesting point about how, you know, many people equate, uh, you know, being a normal weight or being, you know, having a lower weight with being healthier. And, you know, of course, we know that that uh, is not necessarily the case. And, you know, you can be uh, normal weight or even underweight and still be quite unhealthy uh, from a metabolic health standpoint. A absolutely. That, that phenomenon of, of so-called normal weight obesity, where people who are of, you know, uh, 
technically normal body weight, but they're metabolically unhealthy. They have a relatively low amount of muscle mass, a relatively high amount of body fat. And especially when you get into, you know, having visceral fat and so on. Um, yeah. So there are a lot of, of, of these people around who are, are of normal weight, but not metabolically healthy. Um, and, um, you know, most of them, I assume, are are not doing a whole lot of exercise, and probably, and all of them, I would assume, are are very likely not eating right. So, Doctor O, if you'd have seen PD <clears throat> when he was at his lowest point, I know his waist circumference would have would have passed your metabolic health <laughs> test. Um, the other things that you look at. And you say it because you're the doctor. I'm not. The other the other four things you're looking at to do a quick evaluation of metabolic health are um, your blood pressure, which uh, I don't know if you ever had high blood pressure. Uh, uh, no, no, not that I'm aware of. Yeah, and then you know we would have we would look at your blood panel and we would look at your you know sugar level, your glucose level, probably okay. Uh, but you know, I suspect that when we looked at the other two markers, the HDL cholesterol and triglycerides, you know, we might've gotten some hints there. Uh, but it's likely that your doctors at the time did not pick up on those. Right, right. There's no doubt about that. Um, the, the, all through this odyssey of through through the healthcare system and seeing all these doctors, um, you know, nobody asked me about my diet huh. e- ever. Huh. It's just it's so um, predictable. It, I shouldn't laugh, but it's <laughs> it's just so bloody predictable. It's not like this is new. Wasn't it Aristotle who said that? Your food was medicine. Uh, I think uh, that's uh, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was uh, thirty five hundred um, years Hippocrates. ago. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, <sighs> you know it, it. And it's interesting too. I had this thought much, much, much later. So the doctor that I ended up seeing um, was um, w- what is uh, known as functional medicine or integrative medicine. Okay, so he was an MD, but he had this. That was what he, you know, that's what he was. And, uh, and among MDs, these functional medicine guys or integrative medicine guys are, you know, considered kind, you know, kind of out there as far as out there in left field. Um, and, you, you know, so, and this was in Northern California in the Bay Area. And um, I used to go in there in his waiting room and, you know, there I was, I had been a vegetarian all those years and so on. And, you know, I thought, I used to see these people, it was, you know, it was pretty, you know, in the waiting room. It was a pretty, let's say, a lack of a better word, a hippie-ish kind of medical practice. And the people that going there were sort of that way. Right. And I thought, you know, I wonder how many of those people were vegetarians in sitting in that waiting room and going to see that doctor. Like probably a huge number of them. Um, I mean, I didn't think of this until later, but, um, you know, and people coming with all these complaints that they can't figure out and the other doctors aren't helping them with and, and so on. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's how it is. No, nobody asked me and, and, you know, I had to figure that out on my own. 
You know, when I had my health crisis, literally the very first thing that I had a similar story, went through a myriad of MDs trying to find somebody who had a clue. They couldn't have bought a clue if somebody had handed it to them. Um, I finally ended up in a naturopath and the very first thing he did was fix my diet. That was numero uno. He said, you got to quit putting food in your body that stresses you. And I was like, what? But, well, you were fortunate to find somebody like that. Oh, yeah. I was very blessed. Well, yeah. I want to – I'm sorry. Go ahead, Phil. No, I was going to say let's uh, pivot a little bit, and, and we want to hear more about what you do today and how you're helping people and kind of dig into some of the you know great content and programs that you've put out there now. Exactly. Uh, okay. Okay. Well, thanks for asking. Um, so – what I'm doing to make my living mainly is health and fitness coaching. So I help uh, private clients. Um, the majority of my clients come to me because they would like to lose weight and they are not having uh, success on their own. Um, you know, it's in- interesting that many of them are, are, you know, a lot of them are doing, do low carb diets before, before they get to me and they end up with me because they, you know, they see me on Twitter or elsewhere and they know kind of, you know, something about my approach. So, um, with a lot of them, it involves, you know, fine tuning that approach, um, with, a a, a lot of them also, you know, the, the kind of food that's out there, the ultra processed food that most people are eating massive amounts of, of is frankly addictive. Um, and you know, I mean, there's a lot of debate whether addiction is the right term to use for this, but you know, I think for, for, uh, the average person, I think addictive is just perfectly good word to use. Um, and so many of these people, you know, have a difficult time controlling, their, their use of, um, their, their consumption of these ultra processed foods, the sugar and the, and the oils and everything else. And so, you know, they, they want some accountability, they want help. So I, I do definitely help them with that. Other people just need better information. Um, as far as what I do, uh, you know, in, in my own life, uh, to stay healthy is, you know, I do weight training. I do high intensity weight training and I do that twice a week. So high intensity weight training is a, is a quite a different modality from what you might know about conventional weight training, you know, like the three sets of 10 and then, you know, resting between sets and then lots of volume and going in the gym a lot and all this. So high intensity training is really brief and infrequent workouts, but of very high intensity as, as the name of course implies. So I do that. My workouts take me, um, under 25 minutes to do, um, but they are very intense workouts. Um, they, they also function as cardiovascular workouts because I get my heart rate up to, you know, 145 when I'm in the, in the midst of this workout. Um, and, you know, so, so I do that a couple times a week. Uh, other than that, I, then on my off days, I, I go walking, you know, that kind of exercise, um, nothing strenuous. Um, and as far as like what I eat, which is of course very important. Um, I eat meat, I eat fish, 
I eat fermented dairy like yogurt and cheese. Um, I eat some, some vegetables. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know how many, uh, I would eat if they weren't served to me, but they are served to me. So I eat a few vegetables. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I drink tea and I drink wine. I think, you know, that, that's, that, you know, I eat some eggs. Um, I think that about sums up what, you know, what my food and drink consumption looks like. Um, you know, I try to get some sun regularly and get outside and, and so on. Um, and other than that, I'm, you know, at my desk a lot. You said something there that, that triggered a question I had when I was researching this interview you have this website, roguehealthandfitness.com, and you have a, a course, uh, The Anti-Aging Blueprint. And I'm reading through it because, well, first of all, if anybody's anti I'm against aging, so <laughs> it seemed like. <laughs> but uh, you've got all these different modules, and one of them was alcohol and aging. And I will, I will confess I'm uh, I'm a huge fan of whiskey, and you've got this little note here. Uh, why you don't necessarily need to give up alcohol to live a long, healthy life? I was pleased to hear that. The ideal amount of alcohol that you can drink to live healthier and slow down aging. I'm very interested now. And then the big one, which I'm I'm a little concerned about: the type of alcohol, the most protective to your body. Okay. Without stealing the thunder of your course, can you kind of give us, I don't know, the 30,000 foot flyby on that? Sure. So this is a really interesting topic. And when I've posted about it on Twitter, I've, I've gotten lots of pushback. There, There's a lot of people out there who don't want to hear this. And I think in the United States in particular, we have this... Uh, uh, I don't know, schizophrenic or Jekyll and Hyde or I, whatever attitude towards alcohol. In the United States, you know, you're, you're either a teetotaler or you're an alcoholic. That, I mean, that is the viewpoint of a large number of people. Um, so this is all, this is mostly based on, again, the same kind of studies that we were talking about before epidemiological right. studies. So what they've done, and there's been a lot of research into this, into the relation between alcohol and health. So the upshot is that moderate drinking is associated with better health than not drinking at all. Um, and so, you know, what is moderate drinking? Okay. So that depends on the study you're looking at, Officially defined by our, you know, health over overlords here in the United States, moderate drinking is uh, two drinks or less a day for a man, one drink or less for a woman. However, there have been other studies that have shown, you know, better, better health at, you know, higher levels of drinking. Anyway, there, uh, these, these moderate drinkers have lower mortality rates than non-drinkers. Um, they have lower rates of heart disease, um, which mainly the lower rates of heart disease mainly accounts for that lower, those right. lower mortality rates. Um, they do have lower rates of, of, of other things, but it, you know, the mortality thing is definitely the one you want to be looking at. Um, of course there, 
you know, one of the big problems that bedevils these kinds of studies is risk of bias when okay. you're Okay, all right. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I, I, I understand all the qualifiers and the caveats, okay? okay. I totally okay. get that. Just give me the bottom line. <laughs> is it okay for me to have whiskey? I like to have a glass of whiskey, let's say, probably on average, three nights a week. And I don't, I, if I have two shots, that's probably a typical, I don't drink more than that. And I don't drink more often than that. I'm just talking on average. Am I okay? Am I helping or hurting myself? <laughs> that's all I really want to know. <laughs> I, I, I will, I will say that it is unlikely that you are hurting yourself at that level of alcohol consumption. As to what is you Good, know, I'll, going- I'll have you back on the show then. <laughs> I I was I just need to qualify it by saying it's okay as long as it's the whiskey that your favorite heart surgeon buys. Oh my you. <laughs> gosh. I am so enjoying that. Phil gave me a bottle of, of uh what's that called? Old Sol- uh, horse soldier. Horse soldier. Um yeah, I've I've definitely been enjoying that a lot. Yeah. And okay. now we have the first sponsor for our uh, podcast. And we have the first sponsor, <laughs> Horse Shoulder Bur. It's, is it bourbon or whiskey? I think it's. I think it's. I don't think it's made in Kentucky. Is it? Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, so they can call it bourbon. Not yet. Yeah, they're they're in the process oh, of yeah. moving their uh, distillery down there. Okay. But. All right, and uh, the other thing was the best alcohol, the type of alcohol most protective to your body. And I suspect I'm not going to like your answer on this one, but I'll live with it. Well, there is some evidence that red wine is the healthier yeah. form of alcohol. Yes. <laughs> My wife will be happy to hear that, however. Okay, okay, good. Very good. Um, there were some other things that I thought were really interesting. Um, I want to. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was actually going to jump in and go back to your exercise strategy because, you know, a lot of health uh, professionals, you know, and uh, some of those guidelines that you mentioned that are handed down from above um, would say that, you know, clearly, you know, that is not an adequate amount of exercise to be. Uh, benefiting you, you know, 25 minutes, 20, 25 minutes twice a week is, is you know, below the recommended amounts. Um, but it's amazing um, how many people I talk to, you know, in the metabolic health space who do settle right around that amount of exercise. And I just wanted to uh, get a little bit more of your thoughts on really? you know, the amount of exercise. Right. Yeah, that that's interesting. So exercise guidelines that, you know, like like you were saying, come from come from above. They they don't generally take into account uh intensity. I mean, they do say things like if you do low low level exercise like walking, you know, you should be doing uh uh, you know, three and a half hours a week of this type of exercise. And if you do, you know, higher intensity like jogging and so on um you know you should do such and such amount the thing is in in terms of weight training and generally ex- exercise in general is that intensity trumps volume and frequency so 
you know, there's been some very interesting Trump's volume and frequency. Yes. Okay. The harder you work out, the less you have to do it. In other words, um, so there, there's been a lot of interesting uh, research in in recent years about high intensity interval training. Okay, so there there was just to give you one example, they took a group of people. One group of people did high intensity sprint interval training on stationary cycles. Okay, so they go all out for thirty seconds. And then they slow down and do low level cycling for a few minutes. And then they go all out again for 30 seconds and, and for a total of four, four all out bouts. Then meanwhile, they took this other group and it stuck them on treadmills and had them uh, or, or possibly it was on the stationary bikes as well, but they had them doing moderate intensity for 45 minutes at a time. And then at the end of, 12 weeks, I think it was, they did their analysis, blood work and so on, muscle biopsies, this kind of thing to see what happened. And so the group that were doing the modern intensity aerobic training, spending, what is, what is that? Uh, three, four hours a week. I don't know, whatever 45 times five is, um, at, that's 135 minutes. I know from because 45 pl- pound plates in the weight room. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, so they they anyway they did this moderate intensity training for several hours a week, whereas the total exercise uh, time spent for these high intensity interval training, you know, was basically minutes a week if you only count their all out bouts. And they had the same results in terms of VO2 max, in terms of mitochondrial changes, and so on. In other words, the people doing that tiny bit of exercise, but at high intensity, got the same results that that these other people uh, took a lot longer to get. So in, in terms of weight training, in particular, intensity also trumps volume and frequency. If you train to momentary muscular failure, which means you are going to move that weight or resistance in, in, in such a way and until you can't move it anymore, until your muscles literally give out, they will not move that weight. Then you only need to do one set and then you go to the next exercise and oh. you, you do this, you, you use minimal rest between exercises so this is why, you know, like, for instance, m- in my case, my heart rate gets up to, um, it, I've, I've clocked it at 156, uh, when I'm in the middle of my workout. And at my age, that is allegedly something like 95% of my max heart rate. Um, so this is, this is the way to work out when you work out in this way at the end of, um, you know, at the end of the workout at, of 25 minutes of working out, you basically really don't want to do anything else other than sit down. Um, and you need plenty of rest and recovery. So in my case, if I'm doing this twice a week, I have a minimum two days rest in between each workout. And, you know, so on my off days, I go walking and, you know, just to stay active. Um, so, and, and according to 
according to a calculator that I've used, and I cannot vouch for the accuracy of this, but there is a way to calculate. So VO2 max is your maximum oxygen uptake, which shows how fit you are. And this kind of measurement can only ordinarily be done in a specialized lab. But there's a way to calculate it using your max heart rate and your resting heart rate. Um, can't remember whether those were the only factors, but anyway, my VO2 max was something around 60 calculated, which, which is quite high, which, you you know, according, again, I can't vouch for the accuracy, but according to the online charts, you know, for my age, that's like over the top, excellent. And this kind of working out that I just described to you, that's all I do. Yeah. You know, it really kind of uh, reveals how, you know, around both exercise and food, I think we have the same problem in that we focus on quantities instead of quality. And, you know, I I think it's because it's easy to measure the quantity. You know, you can measure how much time you spend exercising. You can measure the amount of food that you eat pretty easily. Um, But the quality of the exercise and the quality of the food is harder to assess. And I think one of the fundamental problems that we suffer from these days, you know, systemically, is that when it comes to food, when it comes to exercise, you know, we're focused on the quantity instead of the quality. And it's clear that the quality is more important. Yes. And, and, you know, another problem that comes in here is it's difficult to critique exercise because most people aren't doing any exercise at all. And so, you know, you start saying, well, if you start saying things like, oh, um, you know, you could do a lot better than walking for example. And then, and then you get this, well, what are you, what are you doing? At least they're out there walking, you know? Well, yeah. Okay. Sure. At least they're out there walking and that's, that's good. Um, but there, you know, if you want to get fit, um, you know, there are better ways to go about it. Also, I mean, face it, the, the kind, the kind of workouts that I do and, and that other people do who follow this line of training is, not very attractive to most people. It, it's it's incredibly hard work, um, and m- you know most most people are not they're they're just not going to do it. Um, so anyway, there that is. Well, I wanted to follow up uh, on your your uh, anti aging manifesto here, or whatever it is. I'm I'm really interested in the whole field of anti-aging and you've got this module gero protectors, which is a word I'd never heard until I read it, but I like it. What drugs and supplements protect against aging and how to get a hold of them. And before you answer what those are, I'd like to hear a discussion about metabolic health, Dr. O and its effects on aging and then see if these drugs and supplements dovetail into that discussion. So what's the story with metabolic health and aging? Yeah, I mean, I would say that I think we have, um, you know, pretty good, um, at least I would say, uh, you know, you know, 
we may not have the scientific studies per se, because as you know, PD mentioned earlier, it's really hard to do aging studies in humans. Um, but I think we have you know plenty of evidence that would suggest that you know being more metabolically healthy is going to have a positive effect on aging. And you know, one of the concepts that you know I talk about and that we've talked about together is that it's not per se. You know, it may not be as important how long you live, but again, the quality of your life, we get back to that quantity versus quality. I think that most people would say, you know, I'd rather live 70 very good years and then just drop dead than live 90 years, but be miserable and sick for the past 20 or 30 years of my life, which is what many people, you know, end up doing today. Uh, So, you know, I think we know, you know, we've talked about how metabolic health can prevent uh, many of the diseases that lead to poor aging um, and shortened lifespan. And so there's plenty of reason to think that, you know, focusing on and improving your metabolic health is going to lead both to better quantity and quality of life. Okay, so now talk about the drugs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I want to actually, before, before I mention that, I wanted to, to add to uh, uh, the doctor's uh, statement there. Um, you know, so one, one of the interesting things about aging that they discovered quite a while ago, uh, 90 years ago now, actually, is they found out that when they had their nice little rats in a cage and everything, and they fed them less food that they lived longer. Uh, this was uh, quite a, a revelation at the time, but it's been re- anyway, been repeated uh, ad infinitum. And it's now known that calories, calorie restriction, food restriction is the most powerful anti-aging treatment known in lab animals. Feed them hmm. less, I mean, massively less, sometimes half as much as they would like to eat. And they live a lot longer. So this gets into the oh. about metabolic health. So what's going on there? Well, yeah. there's a lot of things going on because this has been extensively researched. But for example, these animals have lower insulin levels. Um, they're they're you know they have lower levels of blood glucose. Um, you know, getting into your your question, Jack, about the drugs and supplements. The very interesting commonality that so many of these things have is they lower insulin levels and they lower oh. blood glucose levels, like metformin, berberine, rapamycin, lots of other things. Um, so, you know, and then you look at calorie restriction. So, good metabolic health is absolutely central to fighting aging. And if you look at the other side of the coin, what you 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 know you could say well what is the opposite of uh successful aging the opposite is diabetes um so it's it as as people get older they tend to put on body fat they tend to you know become more glucose intolerant they lose muscle and so on but the question is, how much of that is really aging and how much of that is our lifestyle? Um, there, you know, there seems, there seems to be 
as far as you know, as we know from the science looking at animals, there does seem to be a case that yes, um, as as animals age, they do sort of naturally tend that way to have worse, you know, uh, to have higher insulin levels and so on, and to put on body fat. Um, but a lot of it is, you know, at least in our society now, a lot of it is obviously due to lifestyle and there's so much that people can do to prevent it. Centenarians are, have lower insulin levels than, than other older people who are like 20 years younger than them. So this is an association, but, you know, it seems obvious that this is something that has helped them to live to be a hundred years old. They have better insulin sensitivity. What gives you better insulin sensitivity? It's, well, the the most basic correlation is good body composition. You have a relatively low level of body fat, certainly a, a low level of visceral fat, and you have a relatively large amount of muscle. And of course, eating right is important. You know, if you're, if you were, um, living on pizza or something, I, I don't think that's going to be helpful, but it's also not conducive to good body composition either. Anyway, the larger point is that, um, yeah, metabolic health is absolutely central to, um, to fighting aging. Well, I'm doing my best trying to get healthy. (laughs) Dr. O has, has actually played quite a significant role in that. Um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a little bit about this after we sign off, Dr. O. It's been an interesting last couple of weeks for me. Well, we're coming up on an hour here. I don't want to let you get away without talking a little bit about uh, what you do. So um, people can get a hold of you where? Um, Well, there's my website, roguehealthandfitness.com. And of course, these days I'm very active on Twitter. My handle is mangan150. So those are those are the best ways people can find me. All right, we'll make sure those things are linked in the show notes. And the uh, ideal person, your ideal uh, uh, client, is somebody who is fill in the blanks. Um, well, I have had all kinds of different clients, but they tend to be mostly um, high performing middle aged men. I'd say about 90% of them fall into that category. I think there's a, a reality that when we men get to our, I've watched it happen a lot, early to mid 40s, there's a myriad of changes we go through. I think there's actually a life portal that we all go through right around there. Um, anybody who's been through it knows what I'm talking about. Anybody who hasn't is going to find out. Um, so that doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me at all. All right. Well, uh, I say we wrap it up. Dr. O, any last words from you? No, I really enjoyed this discussion, PD. Thank you for coming on and uh, look forward to talking more in the future. Well, thanks a lot. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks for inviting me. And it was uh, it was a great conversation. Very good. Well, for Dr. Philip Ovedia and P.D. Mangan, I am Jack Heald. This is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. You can follow Dr. O on Twitter at iFixHearts, and you can contact him at OvediaHeartHealth.com. Until next time, we'll see you. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. 
So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Avedia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.